0: The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. Our hearts long for justice, which is why we want those who do right rewarded and those who do wrong punished. And yet we've all witnessed that life is full of injustice. This is one of the reasons Life on this earth is painful. Sometimes, justice isn't done. Sometimes, those in the right don't win. Sometimes, those in the wrong seem to get away with it. But we worship a God of justice. Nothing escapes His view. And therefore, every right will one day be rewarded and every wrong will one day be punished. The scales of justice will ultimately not go unbalanced. Longing for justice is a good desire. But this good desire in a sinful heart can warp into a longing for revenge. Especially when we've been personally affected by injustice Our sinful hearts can corrupt the godly desire for justice and turn it into a craving to retaliate and take vengeance into our hands. The Scripture warns us about this. In fact, it even warns us of even rejoicing in the downfall of our enemies. Proverbs 24, verse 17, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Yet at the same time, in the heart of the godly, there must be a desire for the vindication of Christ's righteousness and a longing to see that happen and a rejoicing when it does happen. We should want the ungodly to come to justice. Not merely out of impulses of revenge, but out of impulses for God's righteousness to be upheld and His glory magnified. And one day this will happen. The whole earth will come under God's justice. We have the hope of this because God promises it in His Word. And this hope of future judgment is meant to be for us a source of comfort whenever we suffer injustice at the hands of wicked people. The church in Thessalonica was a church that needed comfort. They were a persecuted church. Based on the first letter, there's reason to believe that even some in the church may have died because of it. So Paul wrote this letter to them. In part, to comfort them in their suffering. And we see how he comforted them, especially in chapter one, verses five to 10. And so I want to take up our study where we left off last week, and we'll focus on verses six to eight this week, but let's read the whole passage for context, as Paul comforts this suffering church. He says, 2 Thessalonians chapter one, verse five. This is evidence Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. In this passage, Paul gives comfort to the believers in Thessalonica by focusing their attention on what God will do in the future. He gives them hope that their affliction would one day come to an end and that justice would be done. And the hope He gave to that church is hope that we can cling to as well when we suffer for our faith. And so as we study this passage, I want us to see three promises of justice to comfort us when we suffer injustice. Three promises of justice to comfort us when we suffer injustice. And the first promise is that God will do right. God will do right. You can be sure that He will render to everyone what they deserve. Now, how does God determine what people deserve? What is the standard by which he judges mankind? And the answer given in this passage is that he judges people according to his righteousness. Notice what Paul says in verse 6 God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. That word just in verse 6 is the same word translated righteous in verse 5. So using the words of this passage, all of us are judged according to, verse 5, the righteous judgment of God. The standard He uses is His righteousness. And our God is perfectly righteous. Psalm 119, verse 137 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Because he himself is righteous, part of his character, everything he does is right. His ways are right, according to Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. His rules are right, according to Psalm 19, verse 9. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In fact, all righteousness comes from Him. Daniel 9-7, to You, O Lord, belongs righteousness. He's the source of all righteousness. Therefore, He is a righteous judge. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and feels indignation every day. And so his standard of judgment is his own righteous character. He doesn't look outside of himself to determine what is right and wrong. He is the rule that determines what is right and wrong. Now, let's take it a step further. What is the rule within God that governs everything He does? What does God value most that determines right and wrong? And we don't have to guess because Scripture is clear with God's own testimony of what He values most. He does everything for the sake of His glory. For example, Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is My name. My glory I give to no other. Everything He does, is for His own glory. Whatever God does, He acts in such a way that upholds and exalts His own glory. So the essence of His righteousness is His commitment to His own glory. He is righteous because He upholds His glory, which is right to do, and everyone is judged by that same commitment. Do we have a commitment to His glory? That's the rule of righteousness in this world. That's why, apart from Christ, we are guilty before God. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the what? The glory of God. If the standard of righteousness is to uphold God's glory, we have fallen short. All of us are unrighteous precisely because we have not glorified God in all that we do. We are unlike God in that respect. That's why we need the righteousness of Christ in order to be saved by God and not condemned by Him. Jesus perfectly upheld His Father's glory when He came. And if we are found in Him, in Jesus, God will count His righteousness to be our own. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, as He died on the cross for our sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. By faith we get His righteousness. Now the way we receive the righteousness of Christ is by faith. Paul wrote in Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified, that means declared righteous. One is justified, declared righteous, by faith apart from works of the law. You can't earn perfect righteousness. And the reason you can't earn perfect righteousness is you've already sinned. Perfect righteousness is 100% on the test. No errors. And none of us are that. Only Jesus is that. But by trusting in Christ who is perfectly righteous, you will be counted righteous in Him. By your union with Christ and faith, you'll be counted righteous before God and have the righteousness that you need to be in the presence of God. Now, I say all that because God's judgment of us will ultimately depend on whether or not we have faith in Christ. If you believe in Christ, you won't be condemned. But if you don't believe in Christ, you will be punished for your sin. It is faith in Christ that separates who God punishes and who God saves and blesses. And so our comfort, if we suffer injustice in this world because of our faith in Christ, is that we can be rest assured that God will sort it out. He will do what's right. The wrongdoer who has harmed us either will have his sin atoned for, paid for on the cross by Christ, or that wrongdoer will pay for his sin against us in eternity. But God will do what's right. According to verse 6, He will repay with affliction those who afflict you. According to verse 7, He will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Now, the church in Thessalonica was severely afflicted by persecution from unbelievers. But these persecutors wouldn't get away with their wickedness. Even though they controlled the city, they wouldn't get away with it. If the persecutors died in the state of unbelief, God would repay them with affliction, which according to verse 9 is the punishment of eternal destruction. That is hell. But for the church, since they believed in Christ, they could look forward to what Paul calls relief, future relief. Though their suffering may be long-lasting, it won't be everlasting. Now that word translated relief means to release tension. It was a word used to describe loosening a taut bow. Loosening the string. One day all believers will be relieved of their suffering in the presence of God. Jesus promised in Matthew five, eleven and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on My account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All who endure suffering because of their faith in Christ We'll one day find rest,'ll we'll one day receive a reward,'ll we'll one day be blessed. So the first promise to comfort us, when we face injustice is to take heart because God will do right. He will punish those who commit injustice against us, and He will bless us with rest in the age to come. The second promise to comfort us when we suffer injustice is that Jesus will come. Jesus will come. According to verse 7, judgment will arrive when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. The judgment will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed. Reveal. Literally, the verse reads, at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. Now that word translated revealed is an interesting word. The Greek word is apokalupsis, which is made up of two parts. Apa, which means away, and kalupsis, which means a cover. So in its verb form, it means to take away a cover. To unveil, to disclose, to reveal. In its noun form, as it is here, it means an uncovering, an unveiling, a laying bare, a revelation. And so Revelation 1 1 is the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So Paul is talking about a time when the Lord will be revealed. His judgment will occur when the Lord Jesus, who we can't see right now, is revealed. In other words, the judgment Paul is writing about is the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes again, the judgment begins. Jesus will be the one who executes God's wrath on earth. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 5, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. The Son of Man, referring back to Daniel chapter 7, a vision that Daniel saw of the Son of Man coming as a a ruler who will rule the earth one day. And so God has delegated this authority of judgment on the earth to His Son. Elsewhere, Scripture says the very same thing. Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, that God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So God the Father will judge creation through God the Son. When Jesus came the first time, He came to die for sinners. But when He comes the second time, He'll come to judge sinners. And His second coming will be a spectacular event. Notice that Paul uses three phrases to describe Christ's future revelation. First, he says that Jesus will come from heaven. That's where Christ is right now. According to Scripture, He is presently seated at the right hand of God the Father. For example, in the book of Hebrews, we read chapter 1, verse 3, After making purifications for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Or in chapter 8, verse 1 of Hebrews, We have a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Chapter 10, verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we read that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So since he is in heaven right now, it makes sense that he comes from there when he comes to earth in judgment. Jesus will come from heaven. And by coming from heaven, it demonstrates that He comes with the authority of the Father to execute judgment. Now notice that secondly, that Jesus will come with angels. Jesus told his disciples that angels would accompany his next coming. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. He said the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. That's what Paul's describing here. Jesus will come with His angels and He'll make recompense. He'll pay everyone according to what they deserve. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. That speaks of directly after Jesus comes in His second coming and makes war against those who are ungodly on the earth, strikes them down in judgment, then He will set up a throne on the earth for a thousand years according to Revelation 20. And He will rule the earth as the Son of Man. And these angels will be Christ's instruments that will accompany Him. In fact, these angels will demonstrate Christ's power. That phrase that says mighty angels literally is the angels of His power. The angels of His power, which emphasizes that the angels get their power from the Lord. These angels will be Christ's instruments as he executes his power over the earth then a third phrase about Jesus' revelation is that he will come in flaming fire and probably describes the whole host both the angels and jesus this is a phrase associated with divine judgment in scripture fire is symbolic of judgment jesus said in John 15:6 If anyone does not abide in me he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. We read elsewhere it's the angels who will help do that. Gather the people and throw them into hell. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29 those who reject Christ are warned that our God is a consuming fire. Again a picture of judgment. In Revelation 19.12, Jesus is pictured in His second coming with eyes like a flame of fire comes in wrath. Now, when angels are used by God in judgment, their work is described often in similar terms. For example, Psalm 104.4, the Lord makes His messengers winds and ministers a flaming fire. God has used throughout the course of mankind angels to execute judgment upon the earth. And so Christ will come in judgment upon the ungodly. And Jesus described his own second coming like this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 to 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man. That's an unveiling. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Then the judgment begins. So the promise of Christ's coming is a comfort when we suffer as believers because we realize that Jesus will come and He will bring with Him the justice that we long for. If you have suffered injustice, that ought to make you more eager for Christ's second coming, for His return. Well, the final promise that comforts us when we suffer injustice is that the wicked will pay. The wicked will pay. We've seen this already, but verse 8 is more explicit that when the Lord comes, He will come inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, there are multiple reasons for Christ's second coming. But one of the main purposes is the judgment of the ungodly on the earth when he comes he will inflict vengeance upon them vengeance is a word that means to punish for wrongs done to punish for wrongs done and that's what Jesus will do when we suffer injustice we may be tempted to get revenge and take justice into our own hands But we need to leave vengeance in the hands of the Lord. In fact, Scripture forbids avenging ourselves. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will deliver you. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Likewise, Romans chapter 12. Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's a quote from Deuteronomy. Vengeance is mine. It's His possession. Because He alone is perfectly righteous. Therefore, He has the right to avenge all wrong. 1 Peter 3, nine. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. why Jesus tells us to do what for our enemies? Not only to bless them, but to pray for them. A kind of blessing upon our enemies rather than taking up revenge against them. In Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, in fact he warned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Perhaps they were tempted to lash out against their persecutors. But he says see that no one repays e- anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Not just the people in the church that you are to do good to one, but do good to one another, he says, and to everyone that is those who are outside the church, including your persecutors, so we must not take vengeance into our own hands. The Lord will avenge his people when He comes, and we should notice that this vengeance is personal, it's personal to Christ. Not only will He come to punish those who afflict his people but He will come to punish those who have rejected Him. This vengeance is personal. His vengeance, Paul says, will be on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now at first glance, that may sound like there are two groups of people that Jesus will punish. Those who don't know God and those who have not obeyed the Gospel but I think it's meant to be read as one group described in two ways. Unbelievers are those who don't know God and unbelievers are those who don't obey the Gospel. That's true of all unbelievers. They don't know God, not savingly, and they don't obey the Gospel. So these are one and the same. They lack a personal relationship with God and they have refused to trust in Christ. And because of this, they are guilty before God. Doubly guilty, if you will. They persecute God's people because they hate God, who is holy and righteous. And they persecute God's people because they hate the Gospel, which condemns their sin. But even those who don't persecute believers will receive the penalty of their sin because they have not upheld the the glory of God. They've fallen short of His righteousness. And the wages of sin is death. And the judgment of Christ awaits all who refuse to obey the Gospel. Notice that the Gospel must be believed, but the Gospel also must be obeyed. That's because the Gospel is both a promise of salvation, and it's also a demand to obey its call. The Gospel beckons you to come to Christ. So it has a promise behind it of salvation. But the Gospel also beckons you to come to Christ. And if you don't, you disobey God. So the One who came to earth to save and offer forgiveness of sins will be the One who comes again to judge everyone who has rejected Him. He will vindicate His righteousness upon those who have rejected Him. His Gospel. When Christ comes to earth, unbelievers who are alive at that time will face His fury. The most detailed depiction of Christ's wrath in His second coming is found in Revelation 19. And I want you to turn there and let me briefly show you this. In this chapter, Revelation 19, John records the vision given to him by Christ, of Christ's second coming. He writes in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11 I saw heaven opened, uncovered, and behold, a white horse. Heaven is open to reveal Christ who's going to come down. He's riding a horse which depicts that Christ is coming to make war. It's white in this case, likely because it pictures His victory. He's already won the victory. So He's coming on a white horse. John goes on, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Those are titles given to Christ in chapter 3, verse 14. He is faithful and true. So it's Christ on the horse. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. In his eyes John saw the intensity of Christ's wrath as he came to make war on the ungodly. And he goes on in verse twelve, and on his heads, on, on his head are many diadems. Diadems are royal crowns. Crowns of kings. Christ wears many diadems because He is the ruler over every nation, every people group, every individual, every sphere that is imaginable. He's king over all. And He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. Because of who Christ is, there remains a depth of mystery in His personhood Yet to be uncovered. Verse thirteen: He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The blood is not his own, but those who he's come to execute. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That is, he is the one who, like words, do reveal God to man. Verse fourteen: And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure, were following Him on white horses. Now, this army is dressed exactly like the bride of Christ up in verse 8, which symbolizes all those Christ has redeemed. So everyone Christ has redeemed, including those who are raptured, those who are translated to heaven, which we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Including those believers who die during this tribulation time that comes before Christ's second coming, including the Old Testament saints, all christ who everyone Christ has at this point redeemed will come with him, but they follow him, and they are unarmed, and they follow him because Christ will execute the judgment. The saints will come to reign on the earth with Christ once He establishes His throne. But Christ will execute the battle. And we see that in verse 15. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. That sword coming from Christ's mouth symbolizes His judgment of the nations as He strikes them down, not with a physical sword, but with the power of His voice. With the power of His voice, God created the world. With the power of Christ's voice, He will slay the nations who are in rebellion against Him. That's how powerful He is. And it goes on, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. His judgment will be absolutely total. The blood of the wicked will flow like the wine flows at a winepress, and He will establish Himself as King of kings and Lord of lords over all the earth. Well, it goes on. But that's a depiction of Christ's second coming. This is the judgment that Christ will bring when He comes again. But as horrific as that is, As terrible of a judgment as that is, there is an even greater judgment to come for all the wicked across the ages. That judgment is temporal. It happens in a period of time and then it's over. But there is a judgment to come for all the ungodly, all who have been judged, and it is eternal. We'll study this verse in more detail next time, but verse 9 says, they will suffer... The punishment, notice, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so the wicked will pay. Whether they are alive at the time Jesus comes back in his second coming, or they've already predeceased, or they die some period after that in unbelief, the wicked will pay. They will not get away with any injustice. God's people throughout the ages have had to endure injustice because of their faith in Him. But there is coming a day, as we've seen, when there will be no more injustice in the world because God will set all things right. That will be a day when right always prevails because right is all that anyone does. But until that day, whenever you suffer for your faith, whenever you are afflicted in the path of following Christ, remember these three promises to comfort you. Number one, God will do right. Number two, Jesus will come. And number three, the wicked will pay. Remember these promises as you entrust yourself to God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank You for never leaving and never forsaking us and being faithful to all Your promises. All Your promises are trustworthy because faithfulness is part of Your character. You have never reneged on any promise. You have never forgotten any promise. You've never walked back any promise. And so we can rely upon all Your promises. We can rest our lives upon Your promises. Especially the promise of the Gospel. That Jesus came to die for our sins and that all who turn from their sins and embrace Christ as Lord and Savior will be saved and their sins will be forgiven. That's the most wonderful promise that You have made to us here on earth. And yet, there is another promise to come that all who trust in Christ will one day live with you and see you face to face. We look forward to that time. And until that time, we ask that Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That You are a God of righteousness in heaven. And we pray that righteousness will be done here on earth. We pray that You would raise up leaders and raise up political leaders and nations across the world to Establish righteousness in the earth. And yet, Father, we also know from Your Word that we should expect persecution. That we should expect that the unrighteous will afflict us for our faith in Christ. And yet, we will trust in You as the God of righteousness that You will do right and render to everyone according to what they deserve. And we trust You that Jesus will one day come and when He comes, He will establish justice on this earth and render judgment according to what is true. And we trust that the wicked will one day pay and justice will one day be done. Father, may we entrust ourselves to You in all that we do. May we glorify You in all that we do and especially when we suffer. May we look to you as the one who will give us rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.